0: Good morning and welcome again. I'm Danny Massey, the interim pastor here at First Pres in Greensboro. And I would just add my word of welcome to all of you who are sharing this service with us as we celebrate what is known as Reformation Day. Uh, Reformation Day is celebrated by uh, Reformed, Protestant, Presbyterian churches and others all around the world because it's, um, we remember that day when Martin Luther nail those questions, those assertions, onto the door of the church in Wittenberg, uh, Germany. It was uh, at the end of October uh, that year, so we are still celebrating around that that same time. Uh, Listen, uh, as I read our brief passage this morning from the New Testament, it comes from the book of Hebrews, where the writer says, therefore, I've told uh, you previously in Bible studies, it's really important when you come across the word therefore, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Uh, I had a professor that said one time that whenever you come across the word, therefore, you should stop and see what it's there for. Often it's the beginning of a charge or an ethical section of the book, having already been told everything that God has done and provided by His grace for His children, now how do we respond? So here comes the response from chapter 12, the first two verses, therefore This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. So this morning on Reformation Heritage Sunday, I want to speak about this subject of heritage and tradition. Family tradition, family heritage, as as Lisa was talking about, but also faith heritage. We can identify, especially on this day, with the words of the psalmist who said... The boundary lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. A goodly heritage. Most of us can identify with that to one degree or another, whatever our particular family or faith heritage may be. What I'm going to suggest this morning, that it is very important that we know that heritage, whatever it is, for good or bad, that we learn from it, that we critique it as we go forward, and that we rely upon it as we are forming our own traditions, our own values, our own convictions. We can learn from those who have gone before us. Heritage is very important. Just a couple of weeks ago, I received a letter addressed to a pastor, First Presbyterian Church, uh, here in Greensboro. And it was sent uh, by a man, Mr. Jorg, from Stockton, California. And what he sent enclosed in the, in the envelope was an old postcard of First Presbyterian Church, Greensboro. This was mailed in 1932, so it was just shortly after this beautiful sanctuary and structure was built in 1928. So it's four years old, and it has a, a photograph of the church. It was sent to a Miss... Mary Ann McKee in Ypsilanti, Michigan. How it got out to an antique store in California where he found it, I don't know. But he had a quote in the letter that he sent, and he said this, this card is an old time classic for sure. I said to myself when I found it, by golly, I think I'll send it home where it can be appreciated. Heritage is important to all of us, he said. And so it is. We cherish our heritage, we, try, we don't accept it uncritically, but certainly we can learn from it. As most of you know, and have been told more times you want to be reminded, I was uh, born and raised in the state of Mississippi, uh, and uh, it's an off-maligned state, and rightly so for many reasons. But there's another side to the tale of Mississippi as well, I often tell people that I come from the most beloved state in the whole Union and they said, what in the world do you mean? You're from Mississippi. I said, because everywhere I've ever lived throughout the South, people have said, thank God for Mississippi, meaning, of course, that someone is lower and worse off than they are, whatever their particular state may be. However, I found this quote a few years ago in the premier magazine written by Alan Bera, and listen to what he says. While I was growing up in Alabama, we always said, thank God for Mississippi. Meaning that no matter how low Alabama ranked nationally in education or in per capita income, Mississippi would surely be just a little lower. The irony is that so much of what shaped my youth, indeed shaped American culture in this past century, came from Mississippi. I had driven through the town of Meridian countless times without ever stopping or knowing about the museum built in honor of the father of country music, Jimmy Rodgers. And I had passed within miles of the birthplaces of Robert Johnson, Skip James, Muddy Waters, and a dozen other legendary bluesmen. William Faulkner, Tennessee Williams, and Eudora Welty all came from the most illiterate 47,000 square miles in America. As the poet Michael Swindle has said, Mississippi is to America what Ireland was to the British Empire, woefully behind the norm in virtually everything held in value by civilized standards and yet producing more genius per capita than Athens under Pericles. Maybe it's because of my heritage in Mississippi that I almost invariably identify with the underdog. I don't care if it's a tennis match a football game. I always find myself pulling from the underdog, and I think probably some of that happens to be the leftovers from having grown up in, in Mississippi. But because I'm not only a Mississippian by birth, but also a Presbyterian, I find myself identifying with and coming to the defense often of the little country of Scotland. You may not know this because Scotland is pretty highly regarded today, but it hasn't always been so. Prior to the 1500s, Scotland, about the size of Maine, was a land of unparalleled ignorance and perversion and illiteracy and poverty. It was the most backward nation in the whole of Europe, and everybody knew it. But then something happened in the providence of God that changed all of that and created a heritage that is blessed not only so many of us here in America but people throughout the world. The children of Scotland, Clan and Alba it's called uh, in Gaelic, like the children of Mississippi all, often take perverse pride in being so consistently underrated and devalued. But post-Reformation Scotland, some, the, something that happened was the Reformation in Scotland. It radically changed that nation. When John Knox, who was imprisoned for a while by the French, eventually made it to Calvin's Geneva and studied under Calvin, he came back to his native Scotland and brought the Reformation convictions with him. Post-Reformation Scotland, since then, has produced more genius, instituted more lasting reforms in religion and in politics, And given birth to more noble ideas than any country you could probably name, certainly on a per capita basis at least. A few years ago, I heard about the book written by Arthur Herman entitled, How the Scots Invented the Modern World. I ordered it thinking it might just be a humorous book because I tend to like those kinds of books. And i hoping it wouldn't be just some kind of cheesy parody building on the population of Tom Cahill's uh, wonderful book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. But if you liked Cahill's work you will probably enjoy Arthur Herman's work about Scotland as well because the title lives up to the worth of the book. We've known for a long time that were it not for the Scots and eventually the Scots Irish, the Scots who were forced to leave their lands and immigrated to Northern Ireland and lived in the area of Ulster and were known as the Ulster Scots. Sometimes people say the Scotch Irish. There's no such thing. Scotch is what they drink. Scots are who they are. But the Scots Irish then immigrated from Scotland to Northern Ireland and eventually came to America. Most of them coming either into the port of Philadelphia, coming down the Shenandoah Valley to these mountains and areas in the where we're living in the southeast or up from charleston when some of them immigrated there but they were the founders of so many things we prize and cherish in america and especially of the church wherever these people went they established churches and they established schools one uh, we're reading out of the paisley bible uh, you see down here in front of the lectern It was the Paisley Family Bible. I think it actually belonged to Miss Paisley by note in there. But surely Paisley was a Scots or Scots-Irishman. There are many Paisleys. There's a clan in Scotland called the Paisley Family Society. I actually know their clan chieftain, a man by the name of Duncan Westerly. Uh, He's visited Charleston on several occasions. And he represents that clan or family called Paisley. It must have been connected to this man who came eventually. There uh, there were Paisleys all through Ireland. In fact, there was a flamboyant, fire-breathing, very conservative, fundamentalist preacher during the Troubles in Northern Ireland called Ian Paisley. So that's another Paisley from from Ireland. But anyway, with his background, with his training, with his faith, um, he came here to Guilford County. Another Scots-Irishman surely was David Caldwell. Now if you're in Charleston you ought to go out sometime to the Bicentennial Gardens. That's where the little log college that he established existed and where he lived with his wife Rachel and he established an academy there that taught and trained so many of the early leaders in America. More so than any other college except for the log college that's now known as Princeton University established by the tenants but he trained and one of the first graduates of his class was a man by the name of Samuel McCorkle and he became later the founder of the University of North Carolina. Another one, Samuel Carrick, that graduated from there, went and became the first pastor in Knoxville, Tennessee and established a college there called Blunt College, which is today known as the University of Tennessee. Wherever these people went. They built schools, they did education because that's one of the great contributions of the Reformed and Presbyterian faith to the larger Christendom. The emphasis on education. Ministers must be educated, laity must be educated. It's critically important and that comes from the days of Calvin and Knox and others. And on most days, on most days, I'm sinfully proud I guess to be a Presbyterian But I realize that this family of faith is not necessarily better or worse than any other family of faith. But if you're watching today, I don't know, probably a lot of you are Presbyterian. If you're not, you may be a member of some church or you wouldn't be watching. But every church has its own traditions, its own heritage, its own values and convictions that contribute to the whole of the fabric of the Christian faith in this country and indeed throughout the world. And I think it is important that we learn from other traditions, that we embrace other truths that we get from beyond our own people and our own ancestors. Because every people, every race, every creed, every ethnic origin has strengths to contribute to the whole of the fabric of the Christian faith. And one of the things I hope we don't do is start discarding our own particular traditions just so we can all be reduced to the lowest common denominator. I think it would be unhealthy for the church at large and unhealthy for any congregation for everyone to think alike and talk alike and act alike and, and look alike. It's healthy to have our distinguishing marks and values. We can critique where we've come from. We can critique where we now stand and ask what would God have us do as we go forward. So we should never forget that first and foremost, we are children of God. Only in a secondary sense are we Christians and disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at a distant third, we may happen to be Presbyterians or Baptists or Pentecostals or Episcopalians or Lutherans or whatever our particular, particular denominational preference may be. And each of these has its strengths. We can learn from the Orthodox churches and from their mystic, the mystic beauty of their historic liturgies. We can learn from the Roman Catholic Church which with its grand system of law and its orders for holy living. We can learn from the inclusiveness of the Episcopalians, from the Lutherans, the primacy of the word and the gift of faith. We can learn from the Methodist and their passionate commitment to social justice, from the Baptists and their passion about evangelism and their devotion to the separation between church and state. We can learn from the disciples of Christ and their winsome spirit. We can learn from the Quakers and their commitment to nonviolence. We can learn from those people who worship in tabernacles and storefronts all across the land and admire them for their passion and the depth of their conviction. Our unity in Christ, which is important to Christ and to everyone who owns his name, but does not mean uniformity. We will continue even going forward, not necessary to look alike or all to think alike. Some people don't see any value in reviewing your past, that it's nostalgic, that it's not very helpful. There was a country song a few years ago entitled, There Ain't No Future in the Past. I don't believe that. I think uh, we can't go with eyes wide open into the future unless we know where we've come from, where we've been, and what those factors are that have shaped and molded us, who we are, what we value, how we think. Some people say, well, that's just something older people do. That's not something that interests the young and, the young and adolescents. They don't care about history or tradition. Wrong. They do care, and they appreciate it. I learned this firsthand several years after we moved with our family of four kids to the Charleston area. And my wife and I had always uh, talked about how much time and energy and work is put into preparing a Thanksgiving meal. And then 10 minutes over and done with, everybody's gorged themselves and left the table. Uh, And so my wife and I came up with another strategy. We proposed to our four children that We would buy some really good steaks. We would grill out at noon. Everybody would have their own steak, and we'd just simplify our Thanksgiving um, together. Well, there was a hue and a cry that went up such as you've never seen before. Our children objected, no, this is not going to happen in this house. We're going to have turkey and dressing. We're going to have green bean casserole and asparagus casserole. We're even going to have Natalie bring her canned cranberry sauce, not fresh cranberry sauce. It has to be sliced right out of the can. And we'll have caramel pie. And we're not going to do it till 3 o'clock in the afternoon like we always do. We're not going to do it at noon. That's our tradition. Do it in the afternoon. After which, we'll go out and throw the football. Everybody will come back in, watch your father fall asleep on the couch, watch the Lions lose another Thanksgiving Day football game, and take bets on how long it would be before their mother would mention the word tryptophan. Our kids actually take bet- bets on that. What... The, the substance in turkey that causes you to be sleepy and fall asleep. At any anyway, rate, how could these young people be so interested in that very seemingly me- meaningless tradition around Thanksgiving? Does not that suggest that tradition and heritage carries great meaning? Not infrequently, someone, a particular young person, will ask me the question, Dr. Massey, what do we believe about this or about that? That's a question that's born of tradition. They know they are a part of a network of people, of like-minded believers, and they want to know how they have spoken to particular topics and subjects over the years. Doesn't mean they spoke right. Maybe they were wrong. Maybe we need to correct what they think. But we need to know what that heritage is and how it has influenced us. Now, in the Presbyterian church You don't have to believe what the church has always said. I mean, you have liberty of belief as an individual. And no one can force any belief on you. And nonetheless, it's good for us to stop and assess and look at those values and traditions that have been handed down to us. We don't come at faith or at life from a vacuum. All of us are connected to different people, to different faith communities. And they have shaped us for good or for ill Our New Testament lesson reminded us that yes, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, so many people that have influenced us but we are summoned to run the race that is before us we can look at the past and learn from it but we can't rely upon it fully because we have to proceed forward and we have decisions and choices we have to make as the people of God and the disciples of Christ in our own day now we may conclude that Some of the things that our ancestors have done or thought or believed are not timely for this age and its needs may even be wrong, that they're contrary to how we interpret Scripture, how we understand what the Spirit of God is doing among us. But all of us come from someplace and we need to know if we can discover what that place is and what they believe if you're my age or older growing up in a presbyterian church you probably had to memorize the catechism at some point that catechism although we may not have known what we were saying at the time as children we knew the words and we could repeat them to this day you asked me to define god and i go back to the definition of the catechism god is a spirit infinite eternal and unchangeable in his being wisdom power holiness justice goodness and truth but as i got older i looked at that definition and thought it doesn't say anything about love. And love is one of the primary definitions of God in the Scripture. God is love. How could they have forgotten that when they were drafting the Westminster Confession of Faith so long ago? But they did. So we can correct what's been handed down to us. Now, I don't know what your particular faith tradition or family tradition may be. I'm trying to learn about my own. I have... Uh, my answers came both from Baptist backgrounds and from Roman Catholic backgrounds. In, my, in fact... When my Irish Catholic grandfather married my Baptist grandmother from Kentucky, both families dismissed them, wrote them off. The Catholic family didn't accept my Baptist grandmother, but her Baptist family didn't accept my Catholic grandfather. So we can learn from our past and we can grow beyond it. Traditioning is important in the faith. John Leith has written and said, uh, one of the things that distinguishes human beings from animals is that we possess cultural memory and we have the capacity for tradition. And so we do. He also said in that book that uh, uh, tradition is the living faith of dead people. Traditionalism is the dead faith of living people. So we want to maintain a living faith. We want to look at our tradition, but we need to move through it and beyond it as well. And so on this day in particular, we can say with the psalmist that the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. We have a goodly heritage. And one of the things that concerns me a bit going forward is that it's tempting just to give up our particular traditions and not think through the consequences of that, but it's important to know what those traditions are even if we challenge them. The late Hodding Carter was uh, also a a journalist and a writer from Greenville, Mississippi, deceased now, but he said something one time that I found very uh, profound. He said there are only two lasting legacies that we can give to our children. Only two legacies that one generation can bequeath upon the next, and those two are roots and wings. Roots for getting in touch with and learning from our particular heritage and history, and wings for soaring into the future, that they can attempt to build a better world and a better church and a better heritage for their own children. And friends, if we fail to hand down these legacies, these traditions, then we're destined to become a rootless generation And as a people, have nothing of substance that we can offer to the church or to the world. So may God help us to remember, to respect, and to reclaim where appropriate those things that have been handed down by our families and our families of faith throughout the generations. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.